Let's stand together, please, as we uh, sing Luke 9, 23. to our Lord. Um, I'm going to ask that during the week, as well as all the prayer points that are on the back of your um, bulletin, that you would pray for the presbytery, the Darling Downs Presbytery. Uh, they're having uh, three days of meetings uh, and uh, it would be very handy uh, to have your prayers for them. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, please pray for the Darling Downs Presbytery. Let's bow again now, let's pray. Father, uh, we marvel at just how gracious you are towards us. You are God Almighty, all-powerful. There is nothing that you cannot do. Uh, compared to you, we are so weak. We, we can't even number the hairs on our head, Father. You know them. We can't add a single day to our life, uh, yet you can. You, you are an amazing God, uh, and you care for us. Thank you, Father, for your care. Father, uh, we have much to thank you for, for uh, your word and your spirit, for the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, thank you, Father. Thank you for families and friends. Thank you, Father, for food and clothing and shelter. Thank you that you are the God who provides. As it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Thank you for seeing and knowing and understanding. Father, we are thankful that nothing is hid from you. That way you are able to do what is best and right for us. And you choose to do so. Thank you. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to love you with all of our heart. That through your spirit and your word that you would teach us how to walk faithfully with our Lord. How to proclaim Jesus. It's the only saviour and the only way of salvation. How to talk authentically and honestly with people about coming to Jesus following him and living his ways. Father, 
We pray that you would protect us, especially from COVID. We pray, Father, for those who've been sick and unwell. Strengthen and heal them. We pray, Father, for the governments of this world, remembering especially the Ukraine and the Russian governments, the American governments, the French governments, and everybody who seems to be involved there. Father, we do pray for peace and for protection for your people in those places. Father, we pray that you would bless us, that you would bring to us at least three new people so that we can speak to them about Jesus and that you would so work in their hearts and their lives that they would turn to you in faith, that they would repent because your kingdom is here. Father, we pray for missionaries around the world that you would watch over them and protect them. Fill their mouths with your word. We pray for our families and loved ones. Father, we pray for all the best things for them and especially that each one in our families would know you and love you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've already had the Bible reading, so our um, techo guys are going to do their little bit of magic, and uh, we're going to go straight on into the message. Now, I guess that you've heard people say, mistakes were made, but not by me. Or if you've not heard people say that, you know people who've suggested it. Simply put, what they're saying is, it's not my fault. It's the process where people take their sometimes hurtful and destructive acts and then justify them, rationalise their behaviour. A bit like, you know, you can't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs. Self-justification. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, he put it this way in one of his uh, books. He said, I never made a mistake in my life, at least never one that I couldn't explain away afterwards. Uh, these days, we call it blame shifting and rationalisation. Now, I do want you to think on those words because self-justification is the enemy of humility. And God's looking for humility. It's humble hearts who are willing to admit that they need help. It's humble hearts who repent. God's especially looking for humility in Israel. And here it's worth remembering what's happened so far in Matthew's Gospel. 
You know, back in chapter 1, we were introduced to Jesus, who is the Christ. We were given his character through a genealogy. He's the anointed king of Israel. He is from the family of Abraham and King David. And his family includes Israelites, which you'd expect, but also Gentiles. Jesus' family has a history of being merciful and compassionate. Jesus, Matthew tells us, will save his people from their sins and is God with us. In chapter 2, we see Jesus is very different to Israel's current king, King Herod. Jesus is sought after and worshipped by the Gentiles. Jesus acts like God's son. And you can find him in God's word. In chapter 3, John the Baptist comes calling people to repent. And if they repent, they've got to show it. And the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees, they come along and John tells them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist, like the prophets and Moses, was looking for contrite hearts. And Jesus shows up with a contrite and humble heart. Jesus he represents us in baptism and does for us what we can't do. He lives a righteous life, fully committed to the Lord. He's tempted, and as our king, as our representative, he passes the temptation and is blameless. And this sets the scene for, well, what happens at the end of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus will die in our place on the cross and do what we can't do, make atonement for our sins. I mean, that's a merciful and gracious and compassionate king, isn't it? And then Jesus comes preaching. He's like a light saying, repent, because the kingdom, well, it's very near now, and so Jesus travels around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, challenging people to repent. But what decision will the people make? And in Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 25, now's the time where you open your Bibles, you have a bit of a look here, follow along, turn it up on your tablets and phones. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, we see great crowds are following Jesus. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Repent, for the kingdom is near. And great crowds come around to listen to that. A, a bit like Jonah's short message, isn't it, that Keith told us about. These crowds are not just Jews, though. There's Gentiles in here. You see Decapolis, ten Gentile cities. They're like a nation of people who've just been saved, like in the time of Moses. And Jesus sets out to help the people and his chosen followers know and understand what it means to live in God's kingdom. Jesus teaches them about God. 
and about living in the kingdom of God. Now have a look, Matthew chapter 5. He does it on a mountainside, like Moses, in what's being called the Sermon on the Mount. Unlike Moses, there's no thunder or lightning here. Jesus seems gentle, even real and authentic, personal. Follow along. Look at what he says. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Have you ever wondered why Israel's not blessed? Why Israel's not the promised land promised to Moses? Well, it's like this. You wonder what, how you'll be blessed in the kingdom of God, in my kingdom? Well, it's like this. One of the first things, you know, we've got to get our head around is, what's a blessing? A blessing is an extra special gift. Something given to you on top of everything you already have. You know, when God makes everything in Genesis chapter 1, it's all good, but God decides to give more than just the basic model. And so he blesses things. He gives something extra which builds up and enhances. And when Moses told the Israelites how to live as God's people after the Exodus, and just before they went through the Jordan... Then Moses gives them the blessings and the curses. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God on a mountainside and says, blessed, then it's easy to think about entering the promised land and being blessed by God. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is actually how you get it. The poor in spirit, they get the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the word he uses there, poor, literally in the Greek, it means crouching like a beggar. Which is exactly what you find in the Old Testament. Isaiah and the prophets Come back to God with a humble heart, with a contrite and lowly spirit. Isaiah and the prophets. And God will meet you with open arms. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's Isaiah again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, look, I'm going to suggest to you that for any Pharisee listening in, these words would have been absolute poison because they're not meek at all. They're proud. They're not mourning about anything, which is exactly how Israel had been for hundreds of years since their exile. And it's still a horrible thing, isn't it? To see power and pride dressed up in the name of God. And at least 
for the past 2,000 years or so, we've done a pretty good job of making the mistakes of the Pharisees all over again. You know, in the name of this same Jesus sitting on the mountainside, talking about the need to be humble in spirit, the need to be meek, the need to be mourning before God about the terrible botch that we've made of things, what do we do? We build cathedrals. We dress up in ornate robes. We process up and down in purple finery. And I think if you, if you ask the average Australian their perception of what church is about, it would be the opposite of poor in spirit. We need to watch, don't we? We need to make certain we don't do and make the same mistakes Israel made. Let's press on. Verse 6, you got your Bibles there? The fourth of these nine statements that have been called the Beatitudes. I wonder if you can think back to a time when you were really hungry or really thirsty. You know, imagine it's 35 degrees in the sun and you're mowing the church grounds and your mouth is parched and you're longing for a long, cool drink to the point where you can think of nothing else but the ice cubes and that first sip of cool water. Well, Jesus, he's looking around the crowds of Israel and the Gentiles on the slopes of the mountain and he says, how hungry are you? Are you hungry and thirsty? Not just for food, but for righteousness. Because here it is, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I mean, you would have thought that every Israelite would be hungry for righteousness. You would have thought that as the people of God, they would have a passion for pleasing God. A passion for truth, a passion for integrity, a passion for goodness and love. It's interesting. A lot of what Jesus is saying here, it, it comes from Isaiah, uh, particularly, say, chapter 57, where God's got something to say about righteousness. Because the reason they're not hungry and thirsty for righteousness is they're full of self-righteousness. And Isaiah says concerning that self-righteousness, they think they're righteous, but they're not. They think they're full of good works, but the only ones they impress are themselves. And God says about it, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. And the danger is that they're too easily satisfied. They've confused their junk food for the real thing. And Jesus says, 
If you're not satisfied, if you're actually hungry for righteousness, if you're thirsty, you've come to the right mountainside cafe. If you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, stick with me and you'll be satisfied. And the Pharisees will sniff and say, we're righteous enough, thank you. So what sort of Israel is God looking for? An Israel with hungry hearts, longing for something better, longing to be the people they should be. Verses 7 through to 9 help paint the picture. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that's what God's done through Jesus, isn't it? Made peace even with us when we didn't deserve it, because he is the son of God. And when we think of peacemakers, we too often think of war. And yes, we do need peace at the moment. But what about peace within the people of God? I mean, what about peace within the church? Here's the problem with Israel, and sometimes with the church as well. They think that somehow God owes them something. They're not interested in mercy. They're not pure in heart. They're not peacemakers. They think that they've got every right to be called sons of God. You want to be a real son of God? You want to actually see a real son of God? See it in action? Well, here he is. We've actually already met him. God says of Jesus when he was baptized back in chapter 3, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And as you keep reading Matthew's gospel, you'll see it over and over again. Jesus himself is going to be what Israel ought to be, what we ought to be. He's the king who leads by example. And the point is, who's coming with him? And that's what he's asking in the Sermon on the Mount. Who, with a humble and contrite heart, is hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Who wants to be pure and merciful in heart? Who wants to be a peacemaker? Because the ultimate peacemaker, the ultimate pure in heart, is right there with them on the mountainside, looking to gather up the Israel that wants to be what Israel should be. And in the end, the question is, will anybody step forward? Roll up, roll up. Is anybody listening? Is anybody in Israel hungry for this sort of thing? Is anybody in the Gentiles hungry for this sort of thing? 
or not? And Jesus says, if you want that, if you're hungry for righteousness, keep listening. Stick with me. But before he finishes, he says, look, keeping company with me, it isn't a ticket to popularity and success. And right from the start, there's a warning that if success is what you're looking for, then you've come to the wrong place. What you're in for, if you step forward, says Jesus, is persecution. Like the prophets got when they called Israel to repent. What you're in for, if you come with me, is persecution. What you'll get, if you're hungry for righteousness, is more persecution. But it's worth it, he says. Because of the kingdom of heaven, it's worth it. What you'll get, says Jesus in verse 11, is insults, persecution, false accusations because of him. And when you do, he says, rejoice and be glad because of the reward that's waiting in heaven. And you keep reading in Matthew's gospel, and that's exactly how things unfold, especially for Jesus as the false accusations and the insults and the persecutions take him to the cross. And yet he says it's worth it for the glory that lies ahead, for the glory of seeing God, being called sons of God, inheriting at last the restored creation. And the key thing for Israel is to realise that they were meant to be the salt of the earth. They were meant to be a light on a hill. They were meant to be the one nation of all the nations that showed what real righteousness looked like. And instead of that, they just wanted to be like everybody else, with their idols and with their corruption, with their compromise, still keeping the machinery of religion going, but underneath the veneer, rotten to the core. And it's kind of easy to be like that. And there's a warning, a warning for Israel in verse 13, a warning that if they're not to be what they're meant to be, then it's time for a change. Read what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, what's it good for? How can its saltiness be restored? I mean, what are you going to do? Sprinkle some salt on salt to make it salty? And he says, look, if you're not going to be what you're meant to be, then time is coming. He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people's feet. Which is kind of harsh in a subtle way, isn't it? You're meant to be the light of the world, he says. Different, distinct. Don't hide it. 
Let your light shine before others so they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not glory to you. Not because you're a good person. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Be the Israel you're meant to be, full of righteousness, full of truth, humble, and yet bright. And if Israel doesn't want that, well, Jesus is putting the position vacant sign up on the company notice board. Because one way or another, God is looking for people who really do want that. It's like the story Jesus tells it later on, chapter 22 of Matthew, about a banquet that's prepared for the wedding guests, for Israel. And they decide not to come. And so everybody else is invited. Seats at the table for anybody, anyone hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Seats at the table for anyone who wants to come with a contrite heart, humble and poor in spirit, for anyone who wants to follow Jesus, no matter what persecutions come with the deal. Jesus, he doesn't bluster, he doesn't thunder. He's gentle and authentic as he calls people to repent because the kingdom is near. And Jesus, he answers that question. What does God want from me? The answer is exactly the same now as it was then. God wanted an Israel that was humble and contrite, an Israel that was hungry and thirsty for righteousness. What are you hungry for? Bruce Springsteen, he's got a song, Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. But what are you hungry for? Junk food? The funny thing in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe, maybe really the scary thing, is that Jesus doesn't criticise he doesn't point out any failings. He actually doesn't dig out the Ten Commandments and tick them off. And he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even challenge where your hunger lies. He just offers. He just holds it out there, lays the offer on the table, and he says, here's the blessing. Here's the kind of attitude God is looking for in his people, Israel. And it's the kind of attitude he's looking for in you as well. Here's the humble and meek who mourn. <clears throat> Here's the kind of hunger, a hunger for righteousness that's going to be filled. Here's mercy, purity. Peace. And so it really leaves each of us with the question Are you? Are you? 
I mean, is that what you've come to Jesus looking for? Deep in your heart, does the Spirit move you to say, what I really want isn't more money or a new car. What I'm really longing for is a right heart. I look inside myself and I don't like it. I've got a soul that's got cracked lips. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I've got nothing to be proud of. And he says, do all of this publicly like a shining light and stick to it regardless of the persecutions. If that's you, Jesus says, great start. Keep listening as he goes on to spell out what a righteous heart is going to look like and how to show it in action. As he lives out the life of the perfect son of God and dies for the failures of the rest of us. We need to stop shifting the blame. Forget self-justification and rationalizations. Forget our good track record. And those people who think how impressive we are, isn't it great to have them? And ponder on words like repentance, poor in spirit, meek. Words that describe a hungry heart. Because if you've decided you're hungry, then Jesus is the right place to be. Let me pray. Father, <clears throat> what can we say? Thank you. You've done what we could not do. It is you who save us. You are the one who provides the kingdom. We don't make it. We just live in it. Thank you, Father, for your kingdom. Thank you for all of your blessings, for giving us more than we deserve, Father. Thank you. Father, change our hearts. Help us to walk humbly with our God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.